Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on Our Minds. Boom. 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 Welcome to Boom. Welcome to Boom. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> We're going to just sing our own new intro. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm Hannah. I'm Melissa. And on today's episode, we have a really exciting pair of interviews coming up. We talk with Professor Chris Haas, who is at the University of Florida, and he works in biomechanics and neurology. And also a friend of ours that is a person living with Parkinson's disease, and she shares her story. And it's a great pair of interviews because we have Chris, who's on a very clinical biomechanics engineering side of looking at people with this disease and how it progresses and what different treatments look like for it. And then we have sort of the very human side of the disease from our friend Candice. Yeah, and I also liked we talked to Chris a bit about what it's like to have empathy when you're working with people in your studies, too. And so I thought they were very complimentary to each other and also super relevant to you, Hannah, because Hannah studies Parkinson's, yeah, and her research. Yeah, and Candace is a great friend who's just so full of joy and love. Yeah. Bitter boom. Bitter boom. Bitter boom. Bitter boom. Cool. Well, let's start off with a bit of boom. So this bit of boom, I remember actually stumbling across this early in my Parkinson's research. And here we all are like trying to figure out what are the best metrics for diagnosing, for tracking treatment of Parkinson's. And I come across this phenomenon from this woman in, in actually the UK. She's a Scottish woman. Her name is Joy Milne. And she can smell Parkinson's disease before it is medically diagnosed. In fact, she smelled it on her husband. And when he was diagnosed, she like just thought this was a normal thing. Like she was like to the doctors like, oh, yeah, like that Parkinson's smell. And they were like, what? Yeah, this is honestly one of the most wild stories I've ever heard. So I remember you sending this to me and just like reading about it and being like, this is this real life? Like. It's just so wild. And so they've done a lot of research studies with her and have actually, you know, tested. I think they had like different sweaters or like Mm -hmm. items, articles of clothing from people with and without Parkinson's. And so they gave them to her and she went through and wasn't it like she got all of them right of like the 50 except one. Mm -hmm. But then that person ended up developing Parkinson's later on in life. Yeah, it's insane. And It's led to really cool studies of what is she actually smelling, what are the compounds that uh, are being excreted or have higher levels in Parkinson's. And actually, they found that there were actual chemical compounds that she was smelling that was secreted by people with Parkinson's, actually in what's called sebum, which is the oily secretion that coats everyone's skin, but is actually produced in greater quantities by people with Parkinson's, which sort of makes them more likely to develop some skin conditions. But what she's actually smelling are hippuric acid, eicosane, and octadecanal, which I guess concentrations were found higher than usual in people with Parkinson's. 
as a result of what this woman Joy was actually experiencing. That's so interesting. I wonder if there's other people like Joy that can smell that are sensitive to mm. those smells. I wonder, or like you think of dogs or other species that have better, you know, quote unquote noses than us. Mm-hmm. Um, that we might be able to train. To train. To, yeah. That, exactly. Okay, so that was a really exciting bit of boom, <laughs> and let's get on to our interviews. Hello, everyone. We're here talking with Chris Haas, who is a professor at the University of Florida, Go Gators, in uh, the Department of Applied Physiology and Kinesiology. And he is affiliate research faculty in the Center for Movement Disorders and Neurorestoration. And his research focuses on understanding the complex interplay between the nervous system and the musculoskeletal system during whole body movements, such as walking and standing balance. So our first question that we love to ask is, when did you first know you wanted to be a biomechanist? That is a good question. (laughs) My first real introduction to the field was in my sophomore, junior year of college, kind of the transition time. I had added a second major. I was a biology major at Furman University, and I added an exercise science double major. Oh, wow. In our course, uh, one of the introductory courses, they talked about all the different fields and careers, if you will, that somebody with these type of degrees can do. And that's kind of my first exposure to it. And that kind of lay dormant really for a while. As I said, exercise science and biology major, and I was really interested in cardiac rehab and really thought that I'd be doing a career in cardiac rehab at that time. And then through a series of fortunate events, not part of my plan, but a fortunate events that since they got me here, I kind of switched out of that into more understanding. I was exercise physiology master's student. And during that time, I was really becoming interested in not just measuring how people perform, but understanding the mechanisms behind the way they were doing certain things. And so our lab at the time was focused on exercise for health. And so we'd say we'd measure a six-minute walk test and say they got better, but we had no idea why they got better. And so I took a few classes in biomechanics to try to better understand and better be able to quantify movement and understand the mechanisms underlying movement. I really kind of fell in love with the idea of pairing technology and math and real-world problems together. And so that kind of led me into biomechanics. Very cool. And so can you just tell us a little bit about what research questions you're currently working on in your lab? Sure. So we mainly focus on trying to help individuals with movement disorders to improve their walking abilities. And so to accomplish that, we have to do certain things related to understanding perhaps what areas of the brain control what areas of movement or or participate in the control of what areas of movement. We have to understand what are the actual movements that these individuals are having trouble with. And then thirdly, we have to understand or look at interventions that may be beneficial. And so whether that be pharmacological, surgical, or behavioral. And so we really have kind of studies throughout all three of those areas going on in the lab currently. We have a large project we're looking at how aging affects the neural control of walking. Wow. So it's a multidisciplinary project with our group in biomedical engineering and our Institute of Aging. It's a multi-year project looking at the progression to mobility impairment and what changes in the brain are occurring. And so we're utilizing mobile EEG, MRI, structural and functional, as well as biomechanical measures to try to understand how the brain is changing with aging and how that may lead to impairments in walking. And then by understanding that better, we can lead to better interventions. 
in terms of our individuals' mood disorders, a lot of the ones that we focus on and partner with are individuals who are older. And so many of these individuals also have comorbidities, such as neuropathy or osteoarthritis. And so we have some projects looking at the impact of osteoarthritis on individuals' gait patterns with movement disorders. And then lastly, and we have an intervention study looking at real-time feedback and trying to improve walking mechanics. Lots of walking. And it's really cool how you get to span the full spectrum. I think I feel like a lot of times labs are only on sort of one side of that, or you don't get to see the whole process or investigate the whole process all the way from understanding to an actual, you know, treatment or therapy or intervention. So that's really amazing. And that's really kind of a focus that I've always had because one, to me, it's all about the people. Yeah. And while certainly we're inquisitive and understanding basic mechanisms are important and certainly are incredibly important for pushing the field forward, I need to make sure, I need to feel comfortable that we try to enhance the life of one of those participants. So there has to be, in my mind, when we're doing a study, there has to be an immediate benefit to the individual. And that might not be, obviously, fixed walking, but it needs to be a positive, enjoyable experience for that hour and a half to two hours. It needs to be that we learn something through that interaction and we leave that interaction feeling that uh, both sides you know, were respected and cared for. How do you communicate that with your patients? Like, Do you just directly ask them if it's been an enjoyable experience or what types of conversations do you have with your patients that are not, I guess, not on the like technical side? No, sure. And so I think we start off by trying to be active in support groups and building those relationships before they ever become a potential participant in a research study. Mm. So we learn a lot from those conversations in the support groups and listening to the problems that individuals may be facing, whether it be the individual themselves or their caregiver. And so that provides kind of a lens for how we talk about things within the lab. And then when the individual is here, it's really crucial for us. And we, we talk about this, our value system, and that you know the most important person in the world at that time is that person in our lab. Yeah. And they need to be treated like that. And so that's one thing is that kind of the customer service, I hate to say it that way, but the customer experience, participant experience frame of mind. But then being able to, you know, obviously we can't answer all questions related to the study with the participant in the room at the time that we're doing it because we don't want to bias their behaviors or, or our behaviors for future individuals based upon those responses. But trying to be upfront and explain what's going on, what it may mean. And then how follow-up after the studies are over. Wow. So how do you follow up with results or follow up with, do you have like an event or something? We followed up with newsletters. We followed up with end of study celebrations. Oh, that's amazing. This, to be honest with you, it sounds like we do this every time and it, we don't, unfortunately. But those are things we have done historically. Yeah. I mean, the fact that you even do them, I think is huge. There's so much human and clinical research that goes on where I feel like those things are not are sort of overlooked. And one of the things that we struggle with in a relatively small community, you know, we're a college town with only about 150 to 170,000 in the population, not participants, but actual people who live in the zip code. And so we do, and with all the research that's done at the University of Florida, we do end up interacting with a different type of older adult or, or person with a movement disorder, meaning they, they've been in studies, right? They're passionate about giving back. They've been in so many studies that they expect a certain level of professionalism, as well as feedback and, and follow-up. Yeah, that makes sense. What would you say are some of the pros and cons of, kind of working with a similar subject pool on a few different studies, like having participants come back who have been in other studies? There's a lot of benefits. and There are certainly some concerns that we've noticed over the years. One is, and we'll talk maybe about the concerns, the 
a lot of studies in older adults will have some type of cognitive screening test. And for some of them, it may just be a screening test. And for some of them, it may actually be, you know, an outcome variable. And because there's only so many versions of these tests out there, it's not uncommon for the individual to actually just verbatim give us the test. <laughs> so it's like, I'll say, have you, you know, have you thought about, have you heard of the rainbow passage? And they yeah. just say it out loud. Turn crazy red. Or for parts of the mocha, they'll just start doing the mocha for you. <laughs> Which then obviously hurts. <laughs> the, uh, right. Whether this, if it's a screening, is that a real assessment of cognition? Or if it's an outcome measure, if they've already memorized it, then you can't change it. The benefits from it are that you build really real relationships and these, be, keep, these individuals become part of your family or extended family. And so it just makes you feel like you're part of, this is part of something bigger than just uh, something that's going to a statistical test down the road. It also forces you, you know, not to waste time. There are certain parts of the research, obviously, that, that we will deal with from the research side. That's just, it's an inherent constraint of doing research, right? Things take time or right. things don't work and you have to redo it. But it hurts a little bit more when you work with a person over time. It's also reminds you of how real the struggles are uh, for these individuals because I have a, one individual who I think about a lot, and she's been in probably four of our studies over the last 15 years. And so I've watched her disease progress over 15 years, and I've watched her family dynamics you know, change over time. It grounds you and gives you value to the work that's outside of you know a grant review or a, an article revision request or et cetera. Just... It takes the kind of the, the negatives out of the scientific part and lets it flow off your back a bit, I guess. Yeah. Everything you're saying is really just getting at that reminder that like our science is so human. I joke with my basic science colleagues a, a lot. And, and and I had, by no means do I want to, I'm just not smart enough to do a lot of basic <laughs> science work that, that my colleagues do. That's maybe why I'll joke That's with how them. I feel too. <laughs> There's not going to be a line of mice that are going to be clapping. <laughs> You don't think they have celebrations at the end with their mice? <laughs> and when you pass away as an investigator, the, the family of the mice are not going to be there thanking you for all they've done. <laughs> they get mice newsletters, right? <laughs> Tongue in cheek, but yeah. So your research also spanned ACL injury and traumatic brain injury. And so I was wondering how you've transitioned from one area to another. Like, was it a quick change or something that's evolved over time? So one of the things that I've probably do differently than others, and certainly you will get advice not to do what I do. <laughs> I've always just been inquisitive and I'd rather be good at lots of things than great at one thing. Mm. And for me, when I switched into biomechanics, it was very much orthopedic based. And so I was very interested in lower extremity control from the mechanical side. So how does the subtalar joint force the tibia to move when you run and when you walk and when you land? And then how might that influence, you know, injury rates or help explain ACL injury rates differently between males and females? And I had no interest in the nervous system as a graduate student. To be honest with you, I, I was probably a little bit intimidated and scared by the complexities of the brain. Felt like a lot of it could be explained by mechanics. And so it didn't matter so much. At the time, in the literature for ACL injury and some of these orthopedic running injuries, the brain was not even part of the conversation. So I was as naive as the field was at the time. And then I was graduating and was looking for a, a postdoc. My wife had received a nice, she's an attorney, received a, a nice offer to be at a firm in Atlanta, prestigious firm in Atlanta. And so I was looking for a way to get to Atlanta. And so I applied for a postdoc position 
at Georgia Tech and Emory in the Department of Neurology, working with Parkinson's patients. And I had never seen a Parkinson's patient outside of you know television or, or whatever. And so it was very abrupt. I got the job in my first day there. We tested an individual with TBS and we were doing some of the early studies on you know why does it work or why do we think it may work and in that session. And then I went to my first support group meeting and then that pretty much just grabbed my heart. And so I have focused almost exclusively on kind of the Parkinson's disease and mood disorders for the last 20 years with some ACL, some brain injury stuff sprinkled in there. It still interests me. And I've tried to apply what I've learned to somewhat respect from the movement disorders work to inform some of our ACL and orthopedic stuff. So I haven't gotten rid of it, but it was definitely kind of a, a sea change. Something just struck me there. You said that grabbed my heart. And I'm just interested in if you could kind of just give us a little bit more detail on that, what you mean and how that changed. Yeah, it seems like it changed your research direction, but how that maybe changed something more than that. It literally was dramatic for me. I don't know fully why. I mean, I, the way I've explained it over time has kind of been, you get married, right? And then there's this like ceremonial statements that we make. And there's always, regardless of your religion or not, there almost always is some statement about for better or for worse, right? And when you're 20 to 33 and you're saying those words, you have no idea what it means, right? Because for most people, you're just as healthy as you're ever going to be. And so you're like, yeah, you just say it and you move on. But when you go to a support group meeting and you actually see what for better or for worse means, right? and you watch these individuals who've been you know, friends and then partners, lovers, et cetera, and then that relationship change over time with the diagnosis of becoming more of a caregiver, more of a advocate, what I saw there was like the embodiment of what love is supposed to be. And so for me, it was just, how could you not want to play a very small role in making those individuals' lives better? Yeah, that was the grabbing for me. Wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> so in what way do you see, do you see your research or I guess maybe research in general making their lives better? There's lots of different ways in which we can do that, right? So one, as I said before, is just if they're in your lab for an hour, that could be the best hour of their day, right? So how you interact with them, how you set it up, how you comfort, care, provide time away for a caregiver, right? Who may, that might be the only hour of that day that they're not really, literally working hand over foot for that individual. So they get a little bit of time. And so from that to providing hope, because if, if the research wasn't going on, we wouldn't be pushing the boundaries of our fields. We wouldn't be moving towards treatments and cures that actually can make a difference. And then the other thing is reminding these individuals that empowering them, right? So participating in research and participating in things such as exercise or other forms of therapies, which we show be beneficial, you know, being a patient is someone who receives care, right? That's how you define it. What we hope to do as part of our research, and obviously what you guys do with your research is to help empower them to be part of their own care, right? So it's it's hope, it's respite, and it's empowerment. Yeah, that's really powerful. Yeah, and just like that tidbit there about just like, there's so many little ways that you can do those things and just kind of shift or reframe the visit or the and the research that we're doing, kind of getting out of our, sometimes you get like analysis fatigue or <laughs> sort of getting out of that and really just stepping into the patient space and human space. Right. And it's really important. I hate to, to pick on any particular group of individuals, but, you know, a lot of individuals from, let's say, the basic engineering sciences 
have lots of skill sets can, that are becoming obviously very impactful on the Parkinsonian community and can be incredibly helpful. But they haven't always been trained in the patient-centered universe. And so it, it's not uncommon for us to have to like take a step back and say, hey, look, you know, this person is not a data point for you. This is a real person and they're, you're not getting a good signal today. And that's, you can't take that on, on them. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Like that, I feel like there's a whole other lens and window that we haven't really explored on Boom. So thank, thank you for sharing. I think we're going to shift a little bit, shift gears to one of our favorite questions, which is, if you have one, could you share a research fail or challenge that you had to overcome? Yeah, just any experience that you might want to share. Sure. So it's incredibly important for all of us to recognize that failure is part of what we do, right? And most people in the real world have some understanding of of baseball and that to be a Hall of Fame player in baseball, you bat 300, right? Which means three out of 10 times you're getting a bat. And some of you fail seven out of 10 times. And we know in the sciences for funding and other things, we fail tremendously more than that. And so Failure is really just an opportunity to grow, an opportunity to be better at your craft. I don't have any signature fails <laughs> that I found uh, incredibly insightful, more so than any other ones. I just really try to look at, I mean, I sure I get very angry for that 48 oh, hour yeah. period after you got a grant <laughs> review back. Or I think our lab's somewhere in the 130 publications now. And it still annoys me when we get a rejection letter and I still get bitter for that 24 hour period. But it's really, if you focus on the negatives of a failure, you just can't survive as a human or be successful in our fields. And so really trying to treat each opportunity as what could have I done differently to better tell the story? Because remember, I'm trying to help that person from Tuesday who came into the lab for an hour. And so when we get that rejected, it means that I didn't do a good job telling their story. Yeah. That's- and so yeah, I, I definitely think failure is something that we have to reframe and have to be part of the conversation. And we need to be able to share, you know, signature failures and the microaggression failures. Otherwise it creates, you know, <laughs> the reality is not Instagram, right? The reality is not Twitter where 90% of posts are about our lab got this funding. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly unrealistic expectations and like part of the joy of science is the iterative of nature, right? It's the, it's the not getting the answer that you thought you would get and having to take a step in a different direction. It's, it's getting told no and have to build a better case, right? It's that, that's the pure enjoyment of why we should be doing what we're doing. And we shouldn't be focused on how much money, who from, and just the outright you know, successes. Yeah, that's great advice and a really good example of how you reframe. And I also like how you pointed out, like, yeah, there are times where I still get frustrated. Like this is not something that goes away, but there's a way to look at it differently to handle it better. And yeah, the hard thing, I think a lot of this comes with age and wisdom, right? And so I think it's sometimes as a PI, you have to be, remember that how you feel today is not how you felt 10 years ago, right? And so when a student gets a rejection letter, it's going to hurt them more than it hurt me. And I can't wash that under the bridge, right? I have to be empathetic and yeah, this hurts. And we could be okay with this hurt, but we can also talk tomorrow about how we can address it and move on in a positive space, right? So you don't want to, I don't want to come across as like 
too emotionally dead in the <laughs> sense that because it is important to have that sting, right? A little bit. Yeah. And so I don't want to take the the sting away, but I want to take away the personalization of that sting, right? It's not you that they critiqued. It's the paper. And separating reaction, I think, from response, like reaction, I feel like you can't control, but then how you respond to that is really what you're talking about. What are you most excited about for the future of biomechanics? I am most excited about the opportunity for really as a field being in the forefront of diversifying science. As I look at how ASB and ISB and kind of our one-off sister organizations, maybe even BMES and others, there's a tremendous movement in terms of equity and inclusivity. We're not perfect by any stretch, and we have lots of accountability partners within the field to make sure that we never rest on our laurels. But when I go to our meetings and I, and I interact with, with biomechanists, there's just a, a sense, there's, there's no ego, there's a sense of that all voices are important. And I think that's really cool that we're moving and continue to strive to move in a direction that supports and encourages diversity of thought, diversity of experience. Mm. We haven't had an answer like that to that question yet. So we really appreciate you sharing that. I think a lot of people have talked about more interdisciplinariness and sort of spreading of ideas, but I liked that. That all fosters from, I mean, disciplinary work, multidisciplinary work fosters from an appreciation and a respect and inclusivity, right? And so none of that can be possible unless we treat each other as humans. And that means regardless of race, gender, orientation, it also means regardless of if you're a sports biomechanist or a motor control, right? Everyone, every person brings something to the table as a human that can impact the future of our science, and the future of the care that, you know, we're trying to do as a, as a field. Yeah, that's really amazing. And I think having these conversations and having people like you that, you know, we look up to kind of voice the importance of that is really how we're going to continue to move forward. So thank you for talking about that with us. Yeah, it's been great to have you on Boom. Sure. And the only thing I would add to this is I think it's really important, and we don't model this very well for our trainees, but not to define yourself by the metrics by which we judge each other. (laughs) Yes. If you think about every time you go to a conference or you meet somebody new, there's this growing sense of within the first two or three sentences, you have to talk about who your lab's funded by, what type of R grant you're working on. And to me that like, as we, as I see this growing, it just kind of devalues the work and it makes it more of the business. Yeah, that's so true. So like on Twitter, when you see Joe Schmo receives $4.2 million grant from NIH, and that's all you see, like that's not the story we should be telling, right? It's that we're going to be curing diabetes with that money. As junior trainees and as you move into being a role model for for graduate students and postdocs in your labs, I think it's a, my advice would be to focus on the science and not the color of money, and to focus on the impact and not who's and why is pay, they're paying for it. Yeah. Ultimately, some of that leads to like deeper conversations. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just a, a shield that we're using as scientists because we're mostly uh, introverts or extroverted introverts. And so you can say, oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, well, I'm working on this R01 to do, but I've got this funding and then going into like a real conversation about what you're doing. So maybe that like that keeps the conversation short and moves it on, but we'll be much 
better scientists and much more impactful as a field if we don't fall prey to using only language of the source and the color of funding. That's so true. That's really interesting you say that because Melissa and I have had that conversation before as far as like when you introduce yourself to someone at a conference, like a lot of the times we'll ask who they are first as far as like what they like to do outside of lab versus starting with like start the conversation on the human, like let me meet you as a human and then maybe we can talk about where where our interests are. But like it's, yeah, it's very interesting you say that because I think it's very aligned. Sometimes we start off with like puffing out our peacock feathers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, now you're impressed and I'm impressed. Whew, got that over with. <laughs> we don't have to be peacocks all the time. <laughs> no, I, and I understand to some extent, like there's in situations where you have to tell your own story, you're selling your story, right? You're selling your brand. But if you're always selling your brand, nobody wants to buy it. <laughs> Yeah, that's some great advice. Well, thank you. We've really enjoyed this conversation. It brought some really interesting and new perspectives that we haven't talked about before. So we really appreciate you bringing your insight to the conversation and to sharing this with other people. Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. I think it's wonderful. I don't know how you guys find time in the day to do this type of stuff because obviously the quality of your science is excellent. And so I think what you're doing is showing all of us that there's time to, sh- to do impactful work when you make it part of your purpose. Thank you. So thank you both. Thank you, Chris. And thank you for yeah doing that as well. It sounds like your lab is very holistic. So we appreciate that. So hi, everyone. Welcome back to Boom. We're here with Candice, who is a mother, a photographer, and a retired businesswoman. And we're really happy to have her here to help share her story. Well, I am delighted to be here. I sometimes laugh because at age 74, when someone says, what's your story? You can either go on for a long time. Or sort of hard to know where to enter the story and exactly what seems to be relevant. So I think I would have to say that I consider myself very lucky. I've had three great kids, mm-hmm. been married for almost 50 years. Oh, that's wow. And I've done a lot of community work as well. And you'll know from prior conversations we've had that I feel very strongly that people should try to be relevant <laughs> in life and do something that's worthwhile. Yeah, definitely. What has been sort of the relevant and worthwhile things that you feel like you've done with your life. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) If you can, you know, just like a short. (laughs) Well, I guess that what I would say is that in the business world, I felt that I helped people along in their careers, Mm. especially women. Mm. Because when I started off, there weren't really many women in business at the level that I was. I went to Harvard Business School after going to Harvard College, and there were 30 women in my class of 800. Wow. And I later went on to McKinsey and Company, where I was one of three initial women consultants around the world. Wow. So one of the things that was really fascinating to me is that oftentimes people had tremendous skills, but they were underemployed. Mm -hmm. And so it was wonderful to try to bring both men and women along like that. So I feel that I did good in that way. I worked on uh, foundations for schools and education and especially for uh, kids for financial aid, largely because I was a scholarship student. My college came through when I needed it. Mm -hmm. My husband was a scholarship student all the way along. And I felt really strongly as the prices of education went up that it was important for people not to have to make their life choices based on debt payback. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So I worked both in our local community here on the peninsula with foundation work and also with Harvard on financial aid committees. Wow. And so I think that that was good. And then I guess my proudest achievement is my three daughters. <laughs> they yeah. are, my baby is now 36, which seems unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> and 36, 38, and 43, but they're all wonderful women. They're hardworking, married with children. They've got professions. And I think they'll stay with them. Yeah. 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 What was that experience like raising three strong women? Were they always strong or did you? Oh, they're all different. (laughs) (laughs) All completely different. And, you know, I like to think that I encouraged them to be strong. I didn't. Mm. One episode going way, way back, one of the children came home from school and said, oh, my teacher is being unfair. You know, she's doing this, she's doing that. And I said, well, do you want me to contact her or do you want to fix it? She said, I want to fix it. Good for her. And so she did that. And my youngest daughter was a very able athlete in soccer. And so she ended up having to get up when she was a senior in high school early in the morning and call coaches across the country to colleges, negotiating for her her spots to come visit. Wow. But I really tried to treat them as adults and tried to get them to make their own strong decisions rather than Mm -hmm. doing things for them. Wow. Yeah, that's beautiful. So... We also wanted to talk to you a bit about what it was like to be diagnosed with Parkinson's and like when, when I guess, did that come about in your life? Well, I think I was, let's see, it happened in, I first started getting symptoms in 2011 mm-hmm. and wow. I became very sick with what, it turns out all the Parkinson's symptoms, wow. but what, I was completely misdiagnosed. Oh, I had intestinal problems and I Mm, had shuffling problems and stooping Mm. problems and freezing problems. Oh my gosh. And anxiety and depression, which is not my typical deal. So I finally went to my internal medicine doctor and I flunked my strength test and she said, I'm sending you to a neurologist. And within Mm. 15 minutes of questioning, she said, well, you have Parkinson's. Wow. And I burst into tears and said, does that mean I'm going to die early? Yeah. And she said, absolutely not. So it was a process of discovery and learning about it. Something's going to get all of us at some point. I think Alan Alda recently said, Parkinson's is something you're probably going to die with, but not from. Mm. Yeah. And you say it's a process of learning about it. How have you learned about it? Is it through your doctor or? Through, yeah, that's a good question. Through both through my doctor and then lots of reading materials. Mm. Lots of reading. Lots and lots of reading and coming up with a program that seemed to make sense for me, which is high activity level mm-hmm. and high movement level, very mm-hmm. important, mm-hmm. along with a, <clears throat> a certain cocktail of medications mm-hmm. that I'm more dependent on big pharma now than I have been since birth control. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested in your, outside of big pharma, like what is this movement program that you're involved in? I have tried, I've just experimented with everything. There's a, a, a Becky Farley Power Moves program mm. I have that certain PT people are familiar with that involves strength and movement okay. and speed and posture and the like. Then there's David Zid in Columbus, Ohio, who has a special mm-hmm. program, which I've done. I visited him, in fact, Wow. in Columbus. Then Stanford offers a lot of wonderful programs that are really top-notch. Tai, I've tried Tai Chi. I've tried boxing I've tried dancing <laughs> I've tried yoga which I find incredibly boring <laughs> even though I know it's good for me. but getting into those positions is just ridiculous <laughs> that's un- totally um, understandable so I've had a couple of falls 
that mm-hmm. set me back a bit. I was practicing on a deck with my physical therapist, walking backwards, and on the fourth lap, my Parkinson's took over, and I started going fast. <gasps> And I crashed my back into the railing on our deck. Oh. Turns out I got stress, you know, compression fractures of two of my vertebrae oh. and fractured my sacrum. Oh so my I had to sort of bow out of the movement stuff for a while while I recovered from that. Yeah. But it gave me a good opportunity to say, what do you really like doing? Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to have to spend half your waking hours combating this disease, mm-hmm. might as well be something I love. So I started taking the dance classes. Wow. Yeah. And now I dance at least five days a week. I do physical therapy a couple times a week. Wow. Aerobic is also very important. Yeah. And dance seems like something that's really social too that you know you can it's social. It. I'm not particularly a group joiner, but I find that being part of part of these groups really encourages empathy. Mm-hmm. And it gives people a chance to share. One of the important decisions I made early on is that I wasn't going to be secretive about my Parkinson's. Mm. I was going to let people know and if I could be of help in any way, mm. I'd be happy to do that. And I think being open about it, yeah. to me, it makes a difference Yeah. anyway. Have you found that there's ways that people talk to you about it that are like easier for you to talk about it? Or like, I guess, what are some maybe like responses that you've gotten to saying that you've had Parkinson's from other people be that like your friends or your family how have they kind of responded to to you talking about it or saying that you have Parkinson's I think they've generally been pretty good about mm-hmm. it certainly friends and people say oh I'm so sorry mm-hmm. and then I say you know I've been lucky and mm-hmm. some people say when you've seen one Parkinson's patients you've seen one Parkinson's patients because it's a designer disease Mm. There's this basket of symptoms that everybody gets, some of them, but not all necessarily. Mm-hmm. You get them in different ways, you know, sometimes greater or lesser. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, there's almost no point in projecting where the trajectory is going to take you. Mm-hmm. Sort of wait for the daily. Yeah. yeah. Do you talk with other Parkinson's patients very often? I do. I see them often in classes. And I, you know, you're likely to say, how are you feeling today? or you're looking perkier, or what's going on. (laughs) Or one person in one of the classes is having difficulty with the caregiver. Mm. And I know someone else from out of town who happens to be a relative in my family whose wife is pointing out that she's sure he's getting early dementia, but he probably isn't. Hmm. So finding the right care group is really, really important. And I find sometimes we talk to people about their doctors and it's remarkable how sometimes people are connected with doctors who give them a particular medicine and say I'll see you in six months Mm -hmm. and I'm very lucky because the doctor that I see is a concierge doctor and I see her every six weeks and she'll spend an hour with me and she'll talk to me she won't even do the physical testing right away she'll say how are things going tell me about this tell me about that Mm -hmm. and she'll run through the raft of questions and then we'll be tested and then we'll talk about future treatment and so that really makes a difference it's it makes me sad to see people who are sort of stuck in this every six months program yeah yeah and and don't get that you're talking about empathy like and don't get the empathy which Mm -hmm. really helps yeah it really helps and is your physical therapist someone who 
focuses on people that have Parkinson's or is that a physical therapist works with anyone and no, that's um, a, another great question yeah she specializes in Parkinson's patients wow. okay so that and she's trained with yeah. Becky Farley and oh she comes to my home mm. which is good wow I'm a little interested like you're very much a doer and you encourage that strength I think in your daughters and and the people around you and it seems like you've come at Parkinson's with that same mindset but I'm wondering what you maybe, have you learned other things about yourself over the course of having this diagnosis and, and living with it and sharing your story? What have you, yeah, what have you learned about yourself maybe? Well, I think that I've found that I'm not nearly so graceful going into old age as I thought I was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly have to combat sometimes feeling, oh, I can't do this like I used to do. Mm-hmm. And that is very tough sometimes or leadership positions I've sort of backed off on and committees because I just don't know what I can bring to the equation sometimes mm-hmm. learned about myself I guess I'm pretty resilient still pretty <laughs> still, ready I'm determined not to so. give up <laughs> yeah not to give up even though sometimes it feels like ugh you know? yeah mm-hmm. and there's no point in feeling sorry for yourself because it doesn't do any good and there are people who are worse off I guess most recently I went through a, I was just, I have shoulder replacement surgery and I took a fall on an escalator and I'm just sort of always in pain and I'm dealing with Parkinson's and I thought, oh, I just can't do this, I can't do that. And I thought to myself, it was particularly in tango. Mm. I wasn't able to do the ochos, which are figure eight swivels that you're supposed to do. And I finally said to myself, this is not beyond your capability, for heaven's sakes. The antidote to not being able to do something is to do something. (laughs) So I went to the web and I found how-tos and I've been practicing at home and things are turning around and I can suddenly begin to do them. Wow. Wow. And you have a dance competition tonight. Does that involve... Ochos? Oh, it's not a competition, <laughs> or, really. Or, yeah. A dance performance. <laughs> it's, performance yeah. it's tomorrow night. Oh, absolutely. Both back ochos and forward ochos. Whoa. Whoa. Oh, wow. A small number of them, thank heaven. <laughs> but I feel excited about doing it. Yeah. yeah. That's great. I wish we could share your performance with our listeners. I think they'd be very impressed. <laughs> oh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. The one thing that I regret, I think, particularly, is that I, was, I have five grandchildren. Mm -hmm. who range between the age of 20 months to 14 years. And I was able and well to help take care of my Mm 14-year-old grandchild when she was born. But I haven't been able to do it so much with the other grandchildren. So there are some things that that you have to give up. And there's an Elizabeth Bishop poem, The Art of Losing Isn't Hard to Master. Mm. And there's a a Frost poem called The Oven Bird. I think the last Mm. line is, What to Make of a Diminished Thing. So those are thoughts that go through the mind. Mm. But then I consider how lucky I've been in my life in so Mm. many ways. Mm. I was born with a brain, born in the United States. My family supported me. Yeah. Yeah, your gratitude really seems to win out at the end of the day. I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great practice. And is that something that you've always practiced? Yeah, I consider happiness as a choice. Mm. Yeah. It seems like mentorship has been very important to you, to mentioned in your career. And so I was wondering what kind of advice you would give, you know, young people in now. I think do what you're passionate about mm-hmm. and always preserve a part of your life to make sure you're doing something you're passionate about. And always try to do something that's worthwhile. It doesn't have to be huge. Mm-hmm. 
but to give mm. back and to give forward I think is important mm. and try to recognize what you're good at and embrace it <laughs> that's really nice thank you yeah, those are all great and the other advice I was wondering is how you would how you would advise someone to just like talk or work with someone maybe that has Parkinson's I think maybe it doesn't always come natural to people or mm-hmm. maybe sometimes they're hesitant and so I was wondering if you have any advice for sure. that sure I think just saying how are you feeling and I'm sorry to hear about this problem but how are you managing it mm-hmm. yeah and do you have the right support and mm-hmm. you know are you safe I've seen some caregivers almost infantilize people which I oh, think is yeah. unfortunate yeah the added helplessness is not <laughs> yeah and yeah. you know sometimes just uh, if someone's having a struggle getting a jacket off just reach out and help them mm-hmm. or help tie their shoes mm-hmm. if they're struggling or ask if they want to have some help mm. you know may I help you tie your shoes and one of the things that's nice about a Parkinson's group of people is that you don't have to explain. Yeah. Mm. People know what the deal is. Yeah. But I think talking to, to people who have Parkinson's, I, I think it's best not to mince words. Just be open Or about you can it. say, would you like to talk about it? Yeah. Are you comfortable? May I ask you a couple of questions? Mm. Yeah. Would that be okay? And you don't have to answer if you don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. But inviting that space inviting a space because there are some people who don't want to talk about it and who feel ashamed of it mm-hmm. I have a, a relative I won't say exactly who it is but it's sort of ironic it's a, it's an in-law within the family who mm-hmm. has contracted Parkinson's mm-hmm. and he I think is ashamed of it mm-hmm. and it's been he sort of denied it for a very long time mm-hmm. and it's cost him quality of life mm-hmm. and that doesn't have to be the case yeah yeah yeah, I like that. Just, you know, checking in and, yeah, just like Hannah said, creating, yeah, that space and, and letting them choose whether or not it's something they to want to answer, talk. whether yeah. they feel like talking about it. Yeah. And sometimes saying, you know, I mean, this may go to other people, but you may say, you know, this is anonymous, you know, I'm not going to tell anyone. Right. right. <laughs> or this is part of a research project and that's fine. Right. Uh, right. But sometimes people are more willing to talk when they feel it's confidential. Yeah, mm-hmm. and making them feel safe, I think, is a huge thing that you've kind of noted, and making them feel like you're empathic in there. Yeah, and there's some of the people, I know one patient who has never told anyone outside her family and very close friends. Wow. She's had it for 10 years. Wow. But she didn't want to be denied committee participation, and she felt oh. that she might be seen as someone hmm. who yeah. wouldn't be able to participate. So yeah. there are lots of reasons for choosing how to how to yeah how to proceed with it. Yeah, What's but it I've had like? it for like eight and a half years. Okay, and I feel like I've been pretty lucky. Yeah, what's it like been participating in research projects? Have you enjoyed it? And oh, I've what? enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's been great, and it again it comes under the category if there's any way that anything can be of help. Mm-hmm. And it's intriguing for me to see people like yourselves who are involved in the research. Like, what's the direction of the research? What are people interested in doing? Mm-hmm. So that's very nice for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes a big difference. I mean, we can't do any of our research without people like you. So. Yeah. And, you know, have you dipped into some of the other classes over at Stanford? 
I've only gone to the dance class. I've seen the Tai Chi class going, but I haven't. Yeah, there's one lady, Betty, whose husband has Parkinson's, and he can't come to the dance classes anymore. Oh. Mm-hmm. But she's very articulate and very smart, and she may have participated in the StoryCorps. Yeah, I think she did. Before. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, she—it might be interesting. Perhaps, do you talk to caregivers? I mean, we haven't targeted them. No, not because at all. it might be something to do. Yeah, mm. that could be another lens, sort of, or perspective. It, exactly. Yeah. yeah, or even talk to Parkinson's patient and the caregiver, spouse, or yeah, special yeah. caregiver. Yeah. And, People uh, close to them in their life, and yeah, and see what differences <clears throat> made in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there are a lot of support groups. Again, some people don't necessarily join up and yeah. do that. I know everyone's different in how yeah. they like to proceed. I wish we could like give your mindset to so many people because I think Melissa actually studies mindsets about disease and how that affects biological and ph- physiological, you know, features. Symptoms and, and symptoms. health, yeah. Oh, it definitely, yeah, mm-hmm. it definitely does. Yeah, and and like you're saying, and I also think about, you know, just something is better than nothing, right? And and like you say, just finding something that you enjoy and... and it really helps. I love boxing, and I found I had osteoporosis. <laughs> I love and, that you love boxing. <laughs> it's so gratifying. <laughs> <laughs> hilarious but some person once asked me said well isn't this hard to live with aren't these hard choices to make and I said well you either do the hard work or you become a cripple yeah Mm. where's the choice yeah Yeah. Yeah. that's true I think people are scared of the hard work though (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah well I I think people who aren't used to hard work for whatever reason you know either they haven't worked out or they haven't been in tune with their bodies before Mm -hmm. I think it's more difficult for those people to to try to pick up a regimen. To push, yeah. Mm-hmm. And a routine. You know, walking the dog doesn't count for aerobic activity. <laughs> no matter what kind of dog you yeah. have. <laughs> One of my favorite quotes from this movie about, actually, so an amputee climber who, um, she actually doesn't have a full arm left arm oh good lord and she's still climbing like some crazy things yeah she climbed with a rope but yeah but it's still free in some points but she loves she says when people come up to her and are like oh if you're climbing i have no excuse and she's like well you never had an excuse (laughs) (laughs) which i feel like is so your mentality like yeah yeah it's it's, life brings us challenges Mm -hmm. and you might as well be ready to meet them Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for including me. I love talking with both of you. Yeah, this is, it's always beautiful and always makes me feel so inspired and, and in awe of people and their mindsets and positivity. Yeah, and we hope this conversation really encourages, you know, other people to have these conversations because yeah. I think, you know, in our field, we study a disease, but a lot of times we don't have this really personal conversation. And I think mm-hmm. it really motivates our research in a different way and really creates that empathy that, yeah, it just makes your, not just your research better, but I think like our lives better and, and more meaningful. Well, that's sort of the whole medical profession in some ways, you know, <laughs> yeah. part of the healing process, I think involves this kind of connection yeah. and the communication. Yeah. And it's just as therapeutic as anything else. And so being able to talk with someone can be incredibly, whether it's inspiring or enlightening, 
but it just feels good. Yeah. And that's why the people who see their doctor every six months and are given a new prescription for medication, and that's about it. It mm-hmm. just isn't enough. It's just not the same. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for opening up and letting us be part of Anytime. your experience. Yeah, thank you Anytime. so much. Thank it's you guys really so nice. much. <laughs> so in our interview with Candice, she mentioned the StoryCorps. And we wanted to circle back and talk about that briefly because it's just this amazing project that Hannah has been working on and wanted to share what that was. Yeah, so thank you, Melissa. That was very (laughs) generous of you. But the uh, StoryCorps is basically, it's actually an initiative started by NPR, National Public Radio. But I partnered with them about two years ago to start something called the Parkinson's Story Exchange, which is basically a portal for Parkinson's patients and researchers to share their own stories. And then the goal is to build empathy between those two populations. So the idea is that researchers don't necessarily see the human behind the disease that they're trying to work to better. And Mm -hmm. the patients don't necessarily see the researchers that are working so hard to help improve therapy and things for their disease. So really, it's just 40 minute recordings of Video recordings, right? Audio. Audio recordings, okay. Um, Of patients with Parkinson's disease and talking to a researcher. The researcher happens to be myself or else a partner that they've chosen to have a conversation with. And it's really just to, to share some of their stories. Yeah, so you can hear more about Candace's story and other people with Parkinson's share their stories if you go online. What do you go to? Yeah, so the website, it's actually on the stanford.edu slash Bronte-Stewart-Lab slash story-exchange. So sorry, <laughs> that's a lot, but just you can probably just Google Parkinson's Story Exchange and it should come up. Yes. Okay, so today we are really excited to be talking to Caitlin Kirby, who's a PhD student in environmental science and policy at Michigan State University, and she recently defended her thesis this October. So thanks so much, Caitlin, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Congratulations on defending. I know that's a big milestone. And the reason that we actually discovered Caitlin was because of what she was wearing at her defense. And we generally do not support asking women about their fashion choices, but this wasn't <laughs> this wasn't typical business casual attire. So you made a skirt from 17 rejection letters, email rejections from other PhD programs, scholarships, and academic journals. But and you said you had others, but um, you used the best ones for your skirt. And this kind of became viral a bit when you tweeted it. And we are just hoping to talk to you about what the inspiration was for making this skirt. Yeah. So it's definitely been really cool just to see all the all the reactions to this, because I, I really had no idea how much it would resonate with people when I got the idea for it. In my graduate lab, my advisor has always, first of all, prioritized like time management. So each week during our lab meetings, we would share a personal and a professional accomplishment. And then she started incorporating this thing where faculty would share failures that they'd had throughout the week. 
just to normalize it and to show that everybody goes through it and also not to pressure the students to share that because they all already tend to have some of that imposter syndrome going on. But this idea really resonated with me that like we all have this experience of failure. And so I wanted to have some way to sort of display that during my dissertation because otherwise it's just this presentation where it like lays out this really clean version of your research and that's not really how it goes. Yeah, that's so true. I feel like we go to these defenses and it looks like something that is not obtainable. So it was cool to kind of really show the struggle that goes along with that. Yeah, and how necessary that is. And really, that's amazing that your you know, department and other faculty support that. And I think that's such a good idea that not putting the sort of onus on the students, because yeah, you're already dealing with so much, but to see the faculty are also sort of human too, and that that's such an integral part of the process. Yeah, definitely. So aside from sort of the lab culture, you also, (laughs) we saw that your skirt was also inspired by Parks and Rec. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I knew that I wanted to have like my rejection letters incorporated in my defense outfit. And I had seen on Twitter, like people who had conference posters printed on fabric they had like turned those into dresses and that sort of seemed like a lot of work. So that was kind of my plan was like somehow getting it printed on fabric and doing it. And then parks and recreation has gotten me through a a lot of my graduate (laughs) (laughs) to unwind and, you know, get that sense of female empowerment. So I was watching the episode where she gets married and she does a similar design of her wedding skirt is out of like newspaper articles and things of her accomplishments. And so then I was like, okay, that's it. That's how I can integrate all of these into into a project. So I actually found there was a blog post called Uniquely Grace that went through like sort of a tutorial of how to do that same like Leslie Nope skirt. Um, And that's how I ended up together. That's very cool. I love Parks and Rec, so that's like so fun to have gotten some inspiration from that. Was there like a particular letter or story behind one of the letters that was particularly meaningful to you? And maybe how did you overcome that particular failure to help move your research forward? You know, at this point, really, as I'm looking back on it, and as I was like going through all the old letters, like it surprised me how okay I felt with all of them. Just because like they just represented paths that I ended up not taking and I took a different one instead. So probably the ones that would have been most difficult were rejections from journals where like my articles still aren't published yet. So there were a couple of journals that I got just flat out rejections from. And so I've sent them to other journals and now they're in the revise and resubmit process. So they will get published eventually. Those ones were probably the most sort of still tender to deal with. Yeah, it's like you're sort of holding your breath until it's finally out, right? (laughs) Yeah, I can definitely relate there. (laughs) So do you have certain sort of mechanisms to to deal with those more tender ones or, or, you know, with all of these different rejections or setbacks or failures in this awesome culture that you guys have? Do you have any advice or tips for how to sort of deal with that or else personally how you might deal with that? Yeah, so the whole like going viral experience and having people respond to the rejection and so many people sending me emails or tweets about their own rejections 
has really taught me that just sharing your failure can be really helpful because everybody is going through it. Like if you're in any kind of creative or professional pursuit, and especially in academia, everybody's experiencing it. So just reaching out and saying like, hey, I had this rejected and it doesn't feel good. And then most of the time, the response you will get is like, yes, I know how that feels. I also had this experience. So for me, that's just been really helpful is having this whole community now of people to to share my rejection with. Wow. Yeah. Definitely one of the perks of social media and like science kind of merging together in a way that I feel like has been really like empowering for people to be able to like talk about these things that we don't often talk about. Yeah, I'm definitely still getting the hang of the whole like professional social media thing, but I learned a lot like especially because of how important mentoring is as a graduate student like if you're not getting mentoring on certain topics you can actually find a lot on social media now that I'm connected to a bunch of people on Twitter because of the the viral nature of that tweet I'm just seeing a lot about like other people who are on the job market and what they've done and their experiences and like learning new terminology for different things that like in job markets, like different kinds of universities and things like that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing. I feel like this was really inspirational for us. And I'm sure for anyone listening, I think some big takeaways for this was really like be open about failure and like have it just be a conversation. And I think being able to kind of generate that kind of culture in your lab seems really valuable and important, an important part of like being able to to move forward from failure. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. And I also want to acknowledge though, that it still like feels scary and like hard to share my failures. Like it's not easy now. And even when I was like putting this skirt together, like over the weekend before my dissertation, you know, I was asking my husband, like, is this a really like strange thing to be doing? Like, (laughs) I, I wasn't sure at all, like how it was going to be interpreted. And so there's still like this feeling of sort of fear before sharing failures or fear before like sharing my skirt that I still experience. But once I get over it, then it's still useful to to share those things. That's a really good point. Thank you for kind of being vulnerable about that because I think we have been doing the failure segment on Boom for a while, as as you've heard a little bit of. We have very few people willing to submit their failures still. <laughs> so we do have some, but it's definitely hard to like kind of, yeah, just like release that and like really be vulnerable about it. So thanks for also acknowledging that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like Melissa said, it was really great to have you and thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you both. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Biomechanics on Our Minds. I'm Hannah. I'm Melissa. And if you want to follow Biomechanics on Our Minds at Twitter, you can follow us at BiomechanicsOOM. Or you can email us at BiomechanicsOnOurMinds at gmail.com if you have any research fails or anything to share that you'd like to be on the episode. Or if you want to be involved in our new student voices segment where you get to interview a person of your choosing. (laughs) And please, uh, if you like Biomechanics on Our Minds, share uh, this episode or another episode you like with a friend. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or other places where you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, the holidays are coming up, so Boom is a great present for anyone. (laughs) 
<laughs> exactly. Speaking of presents, Peter Washington is a gift to oh, us with the music he has gift. bestowed upon us that we use for biomechanics on our minds. So thank you, Peter. Yes, and a huge thank you to the International Society of Biomechanics who has supported us in so many ways, and we're just really fortunate to have their support. Biomechanics, Biomechanics off our minds. minds.